Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, editor of GP Online, and I'm joined by our senior reporter, Luke Haynes, and our news editor, Nick Bostock. Coming up, we'll be discussing rising levels of abuse faced by doctors and staff working in general practice and some of the reasons behind this. We'll also be talking about the latest official GP workforce figures, what they tell us about the state of the profession, and why the BMA said the statistics were gaslighting doctors. Later in the podcast, I'll be speaking to Dr Carrie Lunan, a GP in Edinburgh, and Dr David Blaine, a GP in Glasgow. They both have leading roles in the DPEM project, which works across the 100 most deprived practices in Scotland. I'll be asking them about what the DPEM project is doing to tackle health inequalities and what other practices could learn from their work. And finally, we have a bit of good news, which this week focuses on women in general practice. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. This week, the BMA published results of a new survey showing that more than half of GPs have personally experienced verbal abuse in the past month. Meanwhile, over two thirds have witnessed violence or abuse against colleagues. The survey found that GPs were more likely than doctors in any other specialty to have experienced abuse. One in five GPs reported being threatened while at work in the past month, and two-thirds said their experiences of abuse, threatening behaviour or violence had worsened in the past year. This is an issue that GP Online has reported on before, and it's a problem that unfortunately seems to be getting worse. Luke, we're talking here about abuse that GPs and practice staff have faced, but what does what does that actually mean? What does the BMA say is going on day-to-day in practices? Yeah, so I think to understand the BMA's report, it would be wise to look at some of the examples of abuse that have been suffered by GPs and practice staff. So it includes verbal abuse, threats and physical assaults. In one case, a female GP partner in the southwest of England said her team had been shouted at, spoken harshly to and called unkind and unhelpful things that were outside of their control, such as hospital waiting lists. Again, she said that she'd been shouted at by a patient for asking them to get a PCR test after developing a new cough and a fever, which obviously is the advice. And she was also racially abused uh, in one incident, uh, being told to go back to where she came from by a patient who was unhappy at being told when they would be seen in hospital. So incidents of abuse seem to be quite common at the minute, or um, they're at least being shared maybe more by GPs and their teams who seem to be at the end of their tether after long 18 months of delivering care through the pandemic. There's more examples that I've seen on, on Twitter. So in Alderley in Gloucestershire, a practice received a note through its prescription request box accusing staff of hiding in their surgeries during the pandemic and not providing the service that taxpayers um, deserved. And in Kingston the other week, Surrey police, uh, police in Surrey had to remove an abusive person who was screaming and shouting and threatening practice staff. So the BMA um, survey and the statistics just really highlight this abuse and um, I guess it almost quantifies the frequency with which it's happening. And just to say the most common place for abuse experienced by GPs was in their consulting rooms with 53% admitting that it happened in in their rooms and 27% said that they'd seen it in, in waiting rooms. And I think, yeah, personally, I just think it must be quite scary for practice staff that they're being abused at their place of work when all they're trying to do is offer the best service they can right now. I mean, what what are some of the reasons behind this rise in abusive behaviour? What's the BMA said going on? So the survey um, specifically for GPs, it said that three quarters had said that the reason for the perpetrator's abuse was because they were dissatisfied with the service provided, including access. Um, We know that access has been a contentious issue during the pandemic, 
with GPs being advised um, for the majority of last year to um, to take a sort of online consultation model um, over face to face, just because of the the risk of infection from COVID. Um, but some people have interpreted that as GPs sort of closing their doors, something which has also been sort of trumpeted in some national um, papers. But we actually know, thanks to official statistics, that over half of appointments during the pandemic have been delivered face to face. So even though there might be um, issues with access in some places we know that across the country GPs are still seeing a lot of um, patients face to face. So this isn't the first story we've done about this rise in sort of poor behaviour from patients um, and receptionists really seem to be on the front line of a lot of this as well. We did a story about this earlier this year didn't we? Yeah that's right. So in May there was a poll by the Institute for General Practice Management um, that found that three quarters of GP practice staff received abuse from patients every day in the same report, it gave examples of staff being spat at, having their car tyres slashed, facing racist and sexist abuse, and um, and even being threatened with with weapons. Um, and I know on on Twitter after the story that we did covering the BMA um, survey, people were saying anecdotally that reception staff did get the brunt of um, of abuse in in their practices. I guess they sort of can be the first um, port of call for people trying to get in touch with with their GP. Um, but going back to the survey by the IGPM, it provoked the group to start a campaign calling for zero tolerance, uh, calling for a zero tolerance approach um, to abuse. And it was named, if I die, it will be your fault. And that was after one of the most sort of common abusive remarks that um, that I guess receptionists, but also GPs re- receive quite regularly. Has the BMA suggested anything that needs to be done or should be done to to tackle this problem? Yeah, so following the survey, there's no, there's been no sort of physical plan of action necessarily. But um, Dr. Richard Vautry, who's the GP committee chair, um, he said that there must be an, quote, uh, a, an honest um, public conversation led by the government and NHS England about the state of NHS services and what they can offer at the minute. Um, he said that this could help to ensure people have realistic expectations and could prevent staff bearing the brunt of people's frustration. He's also called for urgent support for general practice to meet the growing needs of of patients. Um, He doesn't specify what that support should be, but one probably can assume that they'd like some more funding and also help around um, key issues, which can be sort of premises at the minute, but also the workforce issues that general practice is experiencing. Yeah, thanks, Luke. Well, that actually brings us quite nicely on to um, our next story that we're going to talk about this week, which is the latest GP workforce figures. Now, these are usually published every quarter with data going back to September 2015, when the then Health Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, remember him, pledged to increase the number of GPs in England by 5,000. I mean, we've talked in previous episodes of the podcast about the number of GP trainees increasing quite a lot in the past few years, but we've yet to see any significant increase in workforce numbers. There's been a slight distraction with this latest data set because NHS Digital has changed how it calculates the figures and has completely updated all the data going back to 2015, which the BMA is not very happy about at all. We'll come on to that in a minute. But first, Nick, um, what's the data telling us about the state of the GP workforce at the minute? So at first glance, there is some good news. The figures published last week are a snapshot of data collected in June this year. And they show that compared with a year earlier, the GP workforce rose by just over 1%. That is an important shift because it comes after a long period of steady decline. Just to be clear, what we're talking about here is the full-time equivalent, fully qualified GP workforce. So it excludes trainees and it counts up the total full-time equivalent workforce by adding together data on GPs working less than full-time, more than full-time and so on. 
Uh, and the total workforce figure for June 2021 is 27,752, meaning there's roughly one GP for every 2,200 patients in England. As I mentioned, that figure doesn't include trainees, but there is positive news on uh, that front too. We've reported regularly in recent years about record numbers of doctors entering GP training, and the figures show that in June 2021, there were nearly a fifth more GP trainees than 12 months earlier. So the cohort of doctors coming through to replace experienced doctors who are retiring or reducing their working hours is growing. Yeah, one of the things that we've noticed sort of over the, the last few years um, is the number of partners falling quite dramatically. Um, and that's kind of been a constant really since September 2015. Are there any signs that this is changing in this latest data? So in terms of partners, uh, it's not good news. Numbers of partners have been in free fall for years now, as you've mentioned, and, and that trend is continuing. Full-time equivalent partners fell by more than 3% in the year to June 2021. That's a slightly slower fall than in each of the previous two years. But in terms of looking for a positive note, we're scraping the barrel. Uh, partnerships have been around for more than a century in general practice, but partners are now close to becoming a minority in headcount terms. And this shift has really gathered pace in recent years, particularly in the face of increasingly heavy workload and GP shortages. Sa salary GP numbers, meanwhile, have risen. There was a 10% rise in salary GPs over the past year alone. Uh, which probably reflects partly the drift away from partnerships, but it's likely also linked to locums taking on salaried jobs during the pandemic as work initially dried up. In any case, the fall in partners and the rise in salaried GPs, as well as doctors in locum work, predates COVID by a long time and is widely seen as reflecting many GPs wanting to try and take more control over their workload at a time when the job, particularly for partners, has become undoable. The other thing about um, this latest data, which I mentioned at the start, is the BMA are really not very happy with the way the methodology, how the numbers are worked out, has changed. What, what is actually their problem with it all? The issue here is that NHS Digital used to adjust the data it collects from GP practices to account for the fact that not all practices submit information and for the fact that sometimes the data practices hand in is incomplete. But it's decided that the way this was done may not have been entirely fair. So this adjustment has been stripped out. Um, and the problem is that the data now simply shows the GP workforce reported by whatever number of practices submitted information in each time period. So comparisons from one quarter to the next are potentially like comparing apples and pears. Uh, for the past two and a half years or so, similar numbers of practices have submitted data. So that means comparisons are, are reasonably possible. But going back a bit further, significantly fewer practices were doing so. So the way the data is now presented makes it really hard to compare the current workforce with the position five years or so ago. And that's significant because in September 2015, as you mentioned, the government promised to deliver an extra 5,000 GPs. We've reported a lot on how that promised increase in GP numbers has failed to materialise and the fact that GP numbers are actually down compared with 2015. Uh, but this change in methodology means the baseline figure the government promised an increase from effectively no longer exists. Uh, and the way the data is presented now makes the fall in GP numbers since it made its promise look smaller because the September 2015 data only includes information submitted by 88% of practices, while the figures for the latest quarter are based on more than 99%. 
So the BMA is concerned that some really important goalposts in terms of measuring the GP workforce have not just been moved, but effectively disappeared altogether. Yeah, I mean, they were pretty angry, weren't they? I mean, there was terms like disingenuous, purposely misleading and gaslighting the profession were were being bandied around by them. So, um, yeah, they're really not very happy about this. And they have actually um, asked for NHS Digital to go back to the old way of calculating it as well, haven't they? Uh, yes, I, I believe they have. And um, I, obviously it remains to be seen whether, whether there's any further movement on that. But I, I guess it's not out of the question. Right. Thanks very much, both of you. So I'm joined now by Dr. Carrie Loonan, a GP in Edinburgh and chair of the Scottish Deep End Project, and Dr. David Blaine, a GP in Glasgow and clinical research fellow in general practice at the University of Glasgow, who's the academic lead of the Scottish Deep End Project. Firstly, um, David, maybe I could start with you. Lots of people will have heard of the Deep End Project, but for anyone who listening who doesn't know what it is, could you explain a little bit about what it is and how it came about? Sure. Yeah. So the Deep End group of, of GPs is the uh, 100 practices in Scotland who serve communities with the most concentrated economic disadvantage. Um, and we use a measure called the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation. And we know all practices in Scotland, there's roughly a thousand of them. What percentage of the practice patient list, the patient population, live in the 15% most deprived SIMD postcodes. So that, that was the initial cutoff. So roughly 100 of, of the almost 1,000 practices. So roughly 10% of the most deprived practices, if, if you like, in Scotland. The Deep End GP group uh, was formed in 2009. Uh, and it was the first time in the history of the NHS and indeed any health service that, that we're aware of where uh, frontline practitioners working in areas of concentrated economic disadvantage were, were brought together, were convened and, and consulted. Um, and it was a real breath of fresh air for many GPs who'd previously been working in, in glorious isolation to, to meet with other GPs who, who are facing similar challenges. Um, we see a, a range of, of health and, and social problems which tend to start earlier in life. We talk about people with multiple long-term health problems or multimorbidity, uh, and the onset of multimorbidity is roughly 10 to 15 years earlier in, in the most deprived decile versus the, the, the least deprived, the most affluent. Um, but within that, there's, there, there's a range of issues related to addictions, mental health problems, child protection, uh, vulnerable adults, migrant health, also much more common in, in the deep end, um, the impact of childhood and, and adult adversity as, as well. All of these practices, you say, are in deprived communities, and you've both chosen to work in those areas. Could you both explain a bit about why you chose that career path? I mean, maybe Carrie, you could start with that one. Thanks, Emma. I think uh, for me, it was this, the sense that being a GP in a deprived community conferred a real possibility of making a difference to people's lives. We can make a difference to people's lives across all sectors of society, of course, but I've found having worked in lots of different practices, but largely in the most deprived practices that we have, an exceptional potential at working in areas of deprivation. And that's to do with being able to work alongside individuals, with families, with communities, particularly um, over long periods of time and multiple conversations, building up relationships of trust. 
and having a key role around sort of coordinating care and advocacy, which is something that I feel very passionately about and is one of the reasons that I chose uh, to become a GP. I think as well, it feels like working in areas of deprivation is very much aligned to the founding principles of the NHS. And I've also found that working in areas of deprivation, I've tended to really enjoy the colleagues that I find myself working alongside. I think it's often a career that is very much chosen and, and often we come to, to work in those places with similar values and that makes the job feel even more worthwhile and more manageable when things get difficult. Yeah, and how about you, David? Was it similar sort of reasons for you? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I would agree with Carrie. I, I think um, you know, my, my idea of the NHS is, is as being part of that wider um, social safety net. We very much ascribe to uh, the idea of Michael Marmot's of proportionate universalism, where we have universal services, but they're they're proportionate to where needs are greatest. And and one of the um, maxims of the Deep End Group is that the NHS should be at its best where it's needed most. Um, and, and and I think that's what draws many of our colleagues to to, to work in in these areas. Could you talk a bit about some of the initiatives that? Deep end practices have set up what they're trying to do and how they're trying to tackle health inequalities and you know whether practices work collaboratively or on their own in those sorts of things. There have been a range of different um, projects. Probably the most notable ones are the community links worker or, or links practitioner uh, project, um, the financial advice project. They started off as small pilot projects in uh, a handful of deep end practices um, and uh, were, were found to be beneficial. Uh, certainly that was the, 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 the feeling amongst the practice practitioners. The evaluations were um, reasonably positive and, and certainly positive enough that, uh, that the, the, the Scottish government felt that they, they, they were worth, um, worth rolling out. So the community links worker is the, is the idea that, um, that, primary care can be uh, a hub of local health and, and, and social care um, and can connect better with existing assets and resources within communities. Um, but oftentimes GPs either don't have the time or, or, or the awareness of what's going on. Um, and also it's not necessarily within the best use of their time. Um, so having a links worker in a practice as part of the practice team uh, enables um, connections with community resources for health and well-being to be made and enables a, a direct link built, building up relationships with individual patients, building their confidence perhaps, um, helping them overcome uh, you know, other barriers to actually engage with those resources. Um, so that, that, that's the links approach. Uh, the financial advice worker approach, again, recognizing that many of the uh, problems that present to us in general practice have at their heart issues related to, to poverty or debt or housing um, and, and all the stress, understandable stress that goes along with that. Um, and that actually uh, addressing some of those issues uh, can can be helpful for, for people's health and well-being as well. Perhaps you could also explain a bit about the re what the research is telling you about sort of the impact that some of these initiatives are having. Are there any specific projects that have made like a really big difference? I think the, the research is, is complex in these areas. It's um, because often the, the benefits, particularly in terms of um, patient outcomes, are, are quite hard to measure in short timescales. 
Um, I mean, what, what I would say, probably the, the one that is um, sort of produced the, the strongest evidence was the CARE Plus study, which was uh, led by Professor Stuart Mercer in Glasgow, uh, working in deep end practices. And it was uh, an intervention to support people with multiple long-term conditions, multimorbidity, um, and that involved uh, various elements. There was elements to do with um, having longer consultations for complex patients. Um, there was elements to do with practice team training um, and support. Uh, and that did show uh, positive patient level outcomes um, improvements in, in, in quality of life, or at least the, the decline was slower in the intervention practices compared to the control practices. And it was cost effective. So what sort of things are you trying to measure or track to see if it makes a difference? I, th I think that varies. Um, typically, taking Care Plus as an example, you know, the, 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 the measures that they were looking at were things like quality of life or um, patient enablement, um, you know, the extent to which at the end of a consultation, people feel able to manage their, their health problems. Um, they also looked at uh, practitioner empathy, which I think is, is a key component here. Um, we, we know from other research that uh, practitioner empathy is uh, a, almost a prerequisite for enablement, um, but often in, in deep end practices, uh, GP stress levels are higher. Um, and that has an impact on, on empathy levels. Um, and that's part of the argument for uh, more resources is, 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 is because then that, that has a direct impact on practitioner and team well-being. So if a project is funded for a short period of time, it's very difficult to then measure the long-term impact of that project. So we can tell from you know, initial evaluations that the outcomes look good, but what we need to know is what happens over five years, over 10 years, over 15 years, over 20 years. Um, and so we need to ideally be moving away from pilot funding to sustainable long-term funding, which is one of the challenges that, you know, that we're, we're trying to address um, in, in the longer term. And if we look at things like another of the, um, of the deep end projects, which is the governship project, which brought together health and social care and other key stakeholders to case manage and, and care plan for patients with the most complex healthcare needs by creating more time within the working day to do that, bringing together different IT systems, um, freeing up some time for GPs to have more of a leadership role. Then we began to see reduction in, in house visiting rates and in, in ED attendance and improvements in recruitment and retention. These are all things that are difficult to measure in a very short term project, but are very exciting to look at. Um, I would add, add to that um, one of the inspirations for many of us within the, the Deep End project has been the example of Julian Tudor Hart and we um, celebrated 50 years of the inverse care law, his Lancet paper from 1971. But what Tudor Hart demonstrated in, in his work was a 30% reduction in, in mortality uh, amongst his patients compared to a, 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 a similar practice in, in a neighbouring Welsh Valley. Um, and that was partly done through proactive care, through anticipatory care, but, but his means of doing that was through building relationships and working with patients in, and the community 
um, as he said, initially face to face, eventually side by side. Obviously, the last 18 months, you know, health inequalities have really come to the fore. Poorer communities and black and minority ethnic communities have been sort of disproportionately affected by COVID-19. I was just wondering, how, how has it affected your practices and your patients? I think it has just really highlighted that my poverty pre-COVID are, are really struggling now. And not just from the effects of COVID itself, but also from the secondary harms in terms of the economic consequences and the social consequences as well. And I guess what we saw quite early on in the pandemic was that the, the rates of serious illness and death within more deprived communities and certain ethnic minority communities were more than twice as high as they were in the most affluent parts of the country. And this was perhaps not surprising, but also very, very concerning. And lots of reasons for that. I think more of our patients tend to be in frontline jobs um, they also have less ability to follow guidance around self-isolation because they don't necessarily have the accommodation that facilitates that or the access to green spaces or the financial security that allows them not to work. Um, I think also poorer underlying health, as David mentioned at the start, you know, developing the diseases of old age 10 to 15 years earlier in the most deprived uh, communities means that they've got a lower baseline to start with and so more vulnerable the effects of COVID if they do catch it. Um, but also what we're beginning to see as well since vaccine rollout at the start of the year is lower vaccine uptake in more deprived communities and certain ethnic minority groups. So there's almost a triple whammy in terms of the direct COVID effects there. Um, so I think you know we've we've been acutely aware as, as frontline workers of how difficult it has been for many of our patients in terms of being able to shield or keeping themselves safe. Um, and it's been a very humbling, I think, certainly speaking to a lot of patients on the phone about how resilient they have managed to be and how they've managed to cope in exceptionally difficult circumstances. Um, it's also had a huge impact on the on the amount of mental health presentations that we've had coming into the practice over the last 16 months or so. That has always been a very big part of our workload, but it's it's a very, very big part of our workload now. Uh, just a, another point to, to flag is that when there is, well, when there are higher levels of premature deaths, in this case related to COVID, then you have higher levels of um, bereaved families as, as, as well, and, and there's there's the fallout from that, and particularly um, the, I suppose the psychological fallout of of perhaps not being able to have the sort of funeral that that you that that you would have wanted for for your loved ones, um, because of COVID restrictions as well. As you've talked about, you know, every practice will have a certain degree of health inequalities or people who are, are struggling more. And obviously some practices will have more than others. But how can GPs sort of start tackling some of these issues, you know, particularly when they're so busy at the moment or practices, practice teams as a whole, um, when many of these problems are quite entrenched? Where would should practices start to look to make changes, do you think? So I think you're... You're absolutely right. This is a thorny, tricky problem that can feel very easily overwhelming and I think can often feel like, you know, this isn't what we train to do. This isn't part of our role. This isn't, you know, something that we can have any influence over. Um, so I think it becomes really important to have some specific examples and some achievable um, ideas about what we can do so that we feel empowered as, as GPs and teams to be able to address health inequalities where we can with individual patients and within our communities. 
So I've, I've thought about this quite a lot, and I think that probably the practical ideas fall into three main areas. One is how we design and run our practice systems. Uh, one is how we build and train our teams. And one is how we can engage and influence more widely. And so maybe just sort of drilling down into those a little bit. Um, in terms of how we design and run our practice teams, I think anything that makes our practice easy to uh, be a part of and stay within. So um, thinking about our registration processes and our DNA policies and making sure that they are compassionate and that we only exclude in very exceptional circumstances and do everything that we can to keep patients in relationship with us would be an example. Other ways would be thinking about how do we mitigate digital exclusion. And I think particularly during COVID-19 where we've had to become remote by default, there's a huge potential to worsen the inverse care law and health inequality. So we need to be able to be flexible with our appointment system when it's possible to do that. And it's important to do that. Then thinking about how we build and train our teams. So I think nothing beats an informed workforce um, who are all signed up to the same way of delivering care. So having an awareness of what health inequalities means and what is the impact of early years trauma. Um, and there are some fantastic resources available on the Finding Fair Health website and also just building the team based on the evidence base. So thinking about whether you can have a financial advisor in your in your building, mental health worker, an addiction worker, a community links practitioner, because they've all been shown to improve outcomes. And then thinking about is there practice based projects that we could do for quality improvement? And then I think the third area is thinking about how can we get involved in wider engagement and advocacy and and some of us will feel more able to do this than others but um, we can get involved in um, advocacy at a very local level so get involved in community engagement events or if you have a patient participation group or if you don't thinking about what that might look like um, get political so work through your professional bodies think about um, and ask specifically um, the colleges, the Royal College of Nursing, the RCGP, the BMA, what are you doing around health inequalities and how can I be involved? Think about who you vote for. And this is getting big picture now, but you know the importance of keeping the NHS public is included in the statement on the inverse care law. And then challenge it when you hear or see discrimination in the language that you hear spoken or in the way that systems that you work in are designed or delivered. So there's lots of different ways that we can do it. Um, and I think sometimes it's just about having some examples that we can that we can pull off the peg and maybe just picking one or two um, over the course of a year and building on that and seeing how that feels. Thanks so much to Carrie and David for speaking with me this week. We've put some links to the DPEN website and the Fair Health website that Carrie mentioned in that interview in the notes for this show. Carrie also took part in a really fascinating webinar on health inequalities for our sister website, MIMS Learning, earlier this year, where she spoke in a lot more detail about what practices can do to tackle inequalities. There's also a link to that webinar, which is free in the show notes. So finally today, we just have time for our good news. And this week, it is all about women in general practice. The RCGP has launched a new online exhibition, Women at the Heart of General Practice, to celebrate the achievements of women in the profession and across general practice, which draws on the experiences of female GPs from across the years. Luke, you've spoken to the college about the exhibition. Can you explain a bit more about it? 
Yeah, so it's been over 150 years since Dr Elizabeth Garrett became the first woman in Britain to qualify as a doctor. Um, and the exhibition, which could be found on the college's website, includes a history um, about Dr Garrett, as well as other notable women in general practice since, um, specifically in leadership roles. This includes Dame Annis Gilly, who was the first woman president of the college. Um, one important theme covered in the exhibition is how the entrance of women into general practice, who now outnumber their male counterparts, has changed medicine and helped improve care for women um, over the years. And it would probably be a good time to mention as well that Dame Claire Gerarda has just been elected RCGP president and she'll begin her new role in November, so we wish her the best of luck. Thanks, Luke. Don't forget, if you're listening, if you have any examples of good news from general practice that you would like us to highlight on in future episodes of the podcast, then do get in touch. You can email us at gppodcast at haymarket.com. That's it for this episode. Don't forget you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice from our website at gponline.com. Thank you for listening and thanks to Nick and Luke and also to Dr. Carrie Lunan and Dr. David Blaine for speaking with us this week. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can get in touch on Twitter at gponlinenews or by using the hashtag TalkingGP. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate us and you can subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. We're back soon. See you then.